Psalm 54, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding among us or with us? Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Selah, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. All right, our uh, sermon today, our sermon text is uh, Exodus 13. It's verses 11 through 22. And this sermon is, sermon is entitled, Their Sign. Uh, let's see here, starting in uh, verse 11. And it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you, uh, which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting the firstborn in the land of, uh, I'm sorry, about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now you've heard the verses for today's sermon, and like the other highlights that are found in the book of uh, Exodus, such as the burning bush and the uh, parting of the Red Sea and the giving of the law at Sinai, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is a truly noteworthy and memorable thing. Unlike some of the other highlights, though, the pillar of cloud and fire was actually prefigured all the way back during the life of Father Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, at the time of the giving of the covenant, this was recorded. It says, Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The smoking oven and the burning torch represented the presence of the Lord at the giving of that covenant. A covenant which involved a set time until his descendants would be returned to the same land in which he dwelt. The pillar of cloud and fire in the Exodus represents the presence of the Lord among the Israelites. The time had come and the land of promise lay ahead of them. It would be a reminder to them of the faithfulness of the Lord to his covenant promises, and it would be a sign to them that he would continue to be with them until he had fulfilled all that he said that he would do. The presence of God will continue to be seen at various times in cloud and in fire throughout the Bible. It is recorded as a comforting reminder that God had remained faithful to his people throughout the ages. And it is a sign to us that he will continue to be faithful until the end of the age. Jesus ascended in a cloud. He will come for us in the clouds. He will come to Israel in the clouds. And with him is the fire of his purifying judgment. These and a few other instances which speak of his presence in this way are to be found in the pages of the Bible. We are so blessed to have this imagery so that we can remember his faithfulness to his people. Our text verse today comes from Nehemiah, it's chapter 9 in the 12th verse. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. We're going to be just a few minutes longer than normal in today's sermon. But these 12 verses are simply filled with interesting information and with wonderful pictures of Jesus, his work for us and in us. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is recounting the work of the Lord. It's verses 11 through 16. Verse 11, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites. Our first verse today brings us again to the anticipation of promise that was made 430 years earlier. The land of the Canaanites is an all-encompassing term. Though other groups of people were there, the land was known by this term and it continued to be known as the land of Canaan throughout all of the Old Testament. It is this land, known as the land of the Canaanites, that the Lord promised that they would be brought into. Not if, but when. Verse 11 going on, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives to you. After his arrival in the land in Genesis chapter 12, we read this concerning Abraham. Avram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Avram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Later, in Genesis 13, a more comprehensive explanation of the land grant was given to him with these words. And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which I you see I give to you and to your descendants forever. The promise continued to be explained and expanded on both to Abraham and to the generations who followed him. The amount of time and the number of generations before it would come about was explained. The chosen son who would receive the land was explained. That the 12 sons of Israel were all included in this was explained. Eventually, the Lord spoke these words to Moses. They're towards the beginning of the book of Exodus. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The name of the Lord who would accomplish this is I am. But his name is also explained as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not just the God of Abraham, nor is he the God of Abraham and Isaac. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The land belongs to this group of people. We cannot go back to Abraham and thus include Ishmael and his descendants, nor can we stop at Isaac and include the Edomites. These people could come under the umbrella of the larger group if they met the Lord's requirements, but they do not automatically have a right to the land apart from what God will do through Israel. And that's especially important today because all of the religions of the world today are trying to go back to Abraham as far as um, uh, establishing the grounds for Islam being included in this. And we cannot do that. By denying the word of the Lord, we can do that. But if we accept the word of the Lord, it has to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thus Islam is disqualified from this promise. Verse 12, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. This takes us right back to Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2. We saw this last week. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. At that time, the word for consecrate was the word kadash. In verse 12, the word for set apart here is abar, completely separate words. The idea is that they were to be separated from the rest of the flock so that they wouldn't be mixed in with those that were not sanctified. A picture is being given for us to see. God is using animals to show us pictures of us as believers. First it was Israel, later it was the people of his church. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It needs to be noted that immediately after verses 1 and 2 last week, which detailed the consecration of the firstborn, the instruction for the Feast of Unleavened Bread was given. That's what we looked at in detail last week. The instructions in verses 3 and 4, if you remember, were addressed in plural pronouns. In essence, you all. But in verses 5 through 10, they were singular. It was you sitting in each individual seat. Now, as soon as those verses are complete, we come back again to the setting apart of the firstborn. The Lord is then showing that the two accounts are tied together. The sanctification of the firstborn is related to the sanctification of the people who will observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is obvious, but it will become even more obvious when we arrive at verse 16. This general expression, set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, will be more fully itemized and explained as well. There will be three distinct categories noted. The first is found in the continuation of verse 12 with these words. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Although not explicitly stated yet, the first category is considered as the oxen, sheep, and goats, which are considered clean domestic animals. Later, animals that are considered clean or unclean will be specified. 
However, for now, the general term behema or beasts is given. The word for that comes, as in every firstborn that comes, is the word sheger. This is the first of only five uses of it in the Old Testament. The other four times are all to be found in the book of Deuteronomy. It generally means increase. It is this firstborn of the increase which specifically belongs to the Lord. However, there is a qualifier. It only applies to the firstborn, which is a male. Later in Exodus 22, it will state that the animal wasn't to be given to the Lord until after the eighth day of birth. Then in Deuteronomy 15, it will again be modified to state that any animal with any defect, such as being blind or lame or any other serious defect, was not to be sacrificed. Instead, it could be eaten back at the home. Verse 13, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. The donkey here is given as an example of an unclean animal. This is the second distinct category of firstborn. Such a domestic animal was not to be given to the Lord. Instead, in its place, a goat or a lamb, it's a general term here that's used, which is a clean animal, was to be given to him. This is the first time in the entire Bible that the word pada or redeem is used. It will be used four times here and then three more times in uh, verse 13. I'm sorry, it'll be used four times total, three times here in verse 13 and again once in uh, verse 15. It can mean to rescue, ransom, deliver, etc. It is given as a way of purchasing a life from death or servitude. The donkey belonged to the Lord, but it was an unclean animal. Nothing unclean was to be given to the Lord, and so an exchange needed to take place, a life for a life. If you're not seeing Jesus Christ and the people of the world in these particular three verses we've looked at so far, you're not looking very hard. An important point concerning this substitution is noted by the scholar John Lang. Listen to what he says. The substitution of a sheep or a kid for the ass, which is a donkey, is a proof that the unclean beast signifies not the evil, but the profane, that which is not fitted to serve as a religious symbol. His words are correct, and they strike at the very heart of what is known as original sin. Just because something or someone isn't evil, it is still profane. It is unacceptable to be in the Lord's presence or to be used as a vessel for the Lord. Until something or someone goes from profane to consecrated, it remains profane. What happens with the land? What happens with the animals? And how these things relate to the Lord and where the Lord's people are heading? All are tied up in the work of Jesus Christ. A life for a life is demanded. If that didn't take place in order to redeem, then something else had to happen, which is verse 13 continuing. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. If no lamb was offered as a substitute, it was to have its neck broken. The verb for break its neck is araf, which comes from the noun oref, which means the back of the neck. This is the first of six uses of it in the Bible. It is the root of where the name Orpah comes from. She, if you remember from those sermons in the book of Ruth, was one of the principles of the book of Ruth. If you haven't watched those sermons, I recommend you go back and watch it and you'll understand a lot better what's going on here. Understanding her name and what she did is all tied up in the use of the word in this verse. Seemingly unimportant words carry throughout the entire Bible and they unveil beautiful pictures of the work of the Lord on behalf of the people of the world. In the case of the donkey, breaking its neck might seem harsh to our sensibilities. 
but there's a reason for it. And if we think about it, the little lamb still had to die in its place if the donkey's neck wasn't broken. The difference between a knife at the throat of a lamb or the snapping of the neck of a donkey is really irrelevant. Dead is dead. The owner of the animal was given the choice. Do I want to keep the donkey and sacrifice the lamb or do I want to kill the lamb and, uh, I'm sorry, or do I want the lamb and to keep the donkey? A donkey would be considered much more valuable than a mere lamb because it was a beast of burden. Again, that's a picture of Christ. What a great value he has placed on the soul of a man. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Believe it or not, what we are seeing in these otherwise seemingly obscure verses is the very heart of God calling out to us. The words are reflective of a choice that every single one of us must make. Will we be redeemed by the Lamb and remain in the Lord's presence, or will we turn our neck and die apart from the Lord? The firstborn is given as a picture of the whole. As Matthew Henry clearly states, the firstlings of the beast not used in sacrifice were to be changed for others so used, or they were to be destroyed. Our souls are forfeit to God's justice, and unless ransomed by the sacrifice of Christ, we will certainly perish. Verse 13 continues, And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. If the pictures of the animals aren't clear enough, these words should be. The firstborn of man are the words Bechor Adam. All right? It is the same word Adam used to describe the very first man, Adam. Of the sons of Adam or man, the firstborn was to be redeemed. What this implies and what it even shouts out is that man is unclean and man must be redeemed. This redemption is later clarified in Numbers chapter 3. The Levites were to be taken in place of the firstborn and they were to be dedicated to the Lord. After that, each firstborn beyond the number of the Levites was to be redeemed for five shekels according to the sanctuary currency. And here are those directions, says from Numbers chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. And for the redemption of the 273 of the firstborn of the children of Israel, who are more than the number of the Levites, you shall take five shekels for each one individually. You shall take them in the currency of the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras, and you shall give the money which, with which the excess number of them is redeemed to Aaron and his sons. Two key points should be deduced from these words concerning the firstborn male. The first is that the firstborn merely represented all of Israel at their birth. Thus, the entire nation was to be consecrated to the Lord, and it was to be considered a priestly nation in this firstborn consecration. The second key point I've already given, but it needs to be repeated. Men are unclean by nature. If the firstborn who represented the whole needed to be redeemed, then it follows that all men need to be redeemed. Israel was selected to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as is anticipated in this chapter right here. The Lord 
told them this specifically, though, a little bit later in Exodus chapter 19 with these words. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. But this right transfers now to the church, the people of the Lord. This is noted in these words from Revelation chapter 1. To him who loved us, speaking to the church, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us as kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ, the perfect and unstained Lamb of God, redeemed us, fallen and unclean, and set us apart. He consecrated us, and he even exalted us not because we deserved it, but because of his great love with which he has loved us. Verse 14, so it shall be when your son asks you in time to come. The word time to come is the Hebrew word machar, literally tomorrow. It is an interesting way of saying that whenever the question is asked, an answer should be ready because he may ask tomorrow. When the question is asked, the answer is to be ready on the lips. Verse 14 going on, saying, What is this that you shall say to him by strength of hand? The Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I want you to listen to the similarity between this verse that I just read and verse 8 from last week. It says, And when you and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Again, a clue and a hint are given, tying the setting apart of the firstborn with the feast of unleavened bread. The two are inseparable. One will not exist without the other. We must be redeemed in order to be unleavened. And if we are redeemed, then we truly are unleavened. Paul notes this in 1 Corinthians 5, which I have read sermon after sermon after sermon. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Next, he tells us how we should respond because of our status. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this verse is the second of five uses of the noun chozek, or strength of hand, to be found in Scripture. We saw the first one last week. It is the stronger form of the more commonly used verb, which is chazak. It will be used again in verse 16, And not again until Amos 6, verse 13, which we will get to in the year 2165. So I'd like you to enjoy its two uses today, okay? Verse 15, And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that opened the womb, but all of the firstborn of my sons I redeem. As is found throughout scripture, we see in this verse the concept of recounting the works of the Lord. What he has done is to be remembered and it's to be repeated. And then in response to the recounting, there should be the word, therefore. Because of what the Lord has done, I therefore. A classic example of this is found in Acts chapter 26. You can go read it this afternoon. Paul first recounted the work of the Lord in his life from verses 12 through 18. He then gave an I, therefore, from verses 19 through 23. So it is with Israel, so it is with the Apostle Paul, and so it should be with each one of us. One other point about this verse 
it says here that Pharaoh was stubborn about letting the people go. The word here for stubborn is the word kasha. It was used only one other time in relation to Pharaoh, and that was all the way back in Exodus 7, verse 3, which said this, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, this might seem unimportant, but it is one final clue of the dozens and dozens that we saw concerning Pharaoh, that the hardening of Pharaoh was a passive one by the Lord and an active one by Pharaoh himself. The only reason I bring this up is to remind you again that the Lord hints all the way through this account that free will in man is a principle and a correct tenet of theology. Verse 16, it shall be a as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Again, I want you to listen to the similarity of verse 16 to that of verse 9 from the instructions of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. This verse explicitly ties the consecration of the firstborn to the consecration of all of the people as is represented by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The firstborn is given for the whole. Of interest, though, there is also a contrast to this verse in the Bible. The word frontlets in this verse is totofot. It's the first of only three times that it's going to be used in the Bible. It's also used in Deuteronomy 6, verse 8, and 11, verse 8. It means frontlets as in something which is in front. The word was to be taken as a metaphor, not a literal thing. Now, I want you to note that this is verse 13, 16 of Exodus. I want to place it side by side with verse 13, 16 of the book of Revelation. Listen to both of these side by side. This is Exodus. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now from the book of Revelation, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This shows us with all certainty that these words in Exodus are not to be taken as literal signs, as frontlets, as the Jews became in the habit of wearing, those phylacteries we talked about last week. Rather, they represented the state of the person before the Lord. They are a mental acknowledgement of the work and lordship of Jehovah, which is followed by an obedient action. The words, and it shall be, referred to the words imparted to the Son, which are, therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. That is what the sign in the frontlets were to be. Likewise, the mark of the beast on the right hand or on the forehead is an acknowledgement of the work and the lordship of the devil, which is followed by an obedient action. They have acknowledged him, and they have taken either a vow, represented by the right hand, or an oath of assertion, which is represented by the forehead, to the Antichrist. The mark may be visible, but it represented the setting apart of the individual to the devil. So, Hopefully everybody here is saved. If you're not and you end up going through the tribulation, you're going to have a real choice to make. Am I going to make a mental assertion to the devil or am I going to allow myself to be killed for the sake of Jesus Christ? Big choices are ahead for many of the people of the world. This lamb has taken my place. His life was given instead of mine. But because of this, I can look upon God's face in a heavenly land ever so sublime. What a cost, what a high price indeed that God would pay with the lamb's shed blood. O oh God, from the foundation of the earth it was decreed 
that I would be a part of that cleansing flood, redeemed, saved, and on a heavenly highway where the Lamb I shall finally see. Through his death my pardon he did pay, and through the resurrection there is joy eternally. Our second thought today is, so God led his people, verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. This verse now takes us all the way back to verse 1237, where the last note of travel was made. There it said that the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. The narrative begins again, but it is still somewhat of a parenthetical thought. Their first stop being Sukkot, it would make sense that if they were headed to Canaan, that they would go by the way of the land of the Philistines because it was such a short, direct way to travel. It was a distance of only about 200 miles, and they could arrive in about 10 days to two weeks. However, it says that God did not allow that route. The Israelites had been in bondage for a very long period. They probably were not trained at all in war. And more probably, they had either no weapons or they had very few things with which they could wage war. If they were to face war, they would become disheartened and they would rather then turn back to Egypt than die in a battle. This is the explicit reason given and it may have been what was communicated directly to Moses. But as we will learn, there will be more reasons than this which will be forthcoming. I thought of seven of them. One, the people including Moses would be tempered through their reliance on the Lord. Two, the Lord would be magnified through the events at the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies. Three, they would be brought to Mount Sinai in fulfillment of the promise, which was made to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. Four, they would be prepared as a commonwealth of people and as a religious nation with a body of law and a tabernacle for worship and for meeting with God. Five, they would be molded and prepared for entry into the land of promise. And six, they would see the consequences of sin and rebellion against God. And finally, seven, they would be able to understand the bounty from personal labor because of the times of dependence on God when they could not work. For these and certainly many other reasons, the longer and more difficult way through the wilderness was chosen to lead Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And you wonder... Why the Lord saves us and then takes us on a long, difficult path home. I mean, how often do we see somebody that really struggles after calling on Christ? I've got a friend that uh, uh, he, I don't know exactly why, uh, what happened to him recently, but I was asked to pray for him. And he, I emailed him and I said, what's going on? And he said, yes, please just pray for me. And uh, he, he's a strong Christian. He loves the Lord. But there's some real distressing things going on in his life. And you wonder why. It's because he's being molded. Just like these people were being molded for all of these reasons for something greater in heaven. If he keeps his faith, he's going to get rewards for it. If he loses his faith, it's only going to be burned away. But in the process, he is being molded. And each one of us is being molded in this way. So when you face these trials, say, Lord, I know that there is a reason for it. I know you're taking me into the wilderness. And there's a reason why I'm being taken into the wilderness. Verse 18. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. It should be noted that the term Lord, meaning Jehovah, is mentioned 15 times in this chapter, but only once in these final six verses. On the other hand, the term God or Elohim is used four times and all are in these last six verses. 
The last time the term God was used was back in chapter 10. It was used seven times and it was always used in connection with the term Lord. There is in this then an indication that what occurs in these verses is by the eternal counsel of God and that it was determined to come about as a part of the plan of redemption before creation itself. God personally supervises the details of this movement with, as we will see, the Lord heading the way. Instead of being taken by the way of the Philistines, it says that they are taken by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. The Red Sea, or Yam Suf, was first mentioned in chapter 10 during the plague of locusts. But now we are entering into the account of the Exodus where it's going to be mentioned three times. And so it's a good time to look at the meaning of the words Yam Suf. Many translate this as the Sea of Reeds. You've probably seen this on the History Channel, for example, because the word Suf means reed. And because of this, the account of the crossing through the Red Sea is often denied. And instead, it is said that Israel simply passed through a shallow marsh or maybe one of the bitter lakes of Egypt. Has any of you heard that on any of these crazy things on TV? This is nonsense. The word suf as a verb means end, such as in the termination of something. Thus, the sea could also be known as the sea of the ending or the sea at the end, which could be in relation to the land of Israel, where the land ends at one of the fingers of the Red Sea. This is seen in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, which using the same word, Yam Suf says this, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elat on the shore of the Red Sea, Yam Suf in the land of Edom. The locations Elat and Edom show without any doubt at all that what this means. Further, one would not build a fleet of ships for sailing in the ocean and then place them in a marshy sea of reeds. And finally, there's only the simple job of going to the New Testament and reading about the account of the Exodus in the Greek where the term erythron thalassan, or Red Sea, is used. Thus, it was always understood to be the Red Sea and not a swampy marsh of reeds. And while I was practicing for this sermon a day ago, it dawned on me that the name could even be a pun that was given at the time of the Exodus because the plague of locusts ended in the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army will find their end in the Red Sea as well. Verse 18 continues, And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. The wording here is very precise. They went up in orderly ranks. It is an adjective plural word, chamushim, and it means specifically battle array. It is used only four times in the entire Bible, in Exodus, Joshua, and Judges. Unlike paintings and movies which depict a hurried bunch of ragtag people coming out of Egypt, the Bible actually depicts them as a well-ordered groups in lines as if prepared for battle. The picture is marvelous, and it gives one the sense of the Lord passing before his armies as they march to his lead. Verse 19, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and will and you shall carry my bones up from here with you. This verse is given in fulfillment of Genesis 50, verse 26, where Joseph prophesied that exactly this would occur. Of all of the notable deeds of the life of Joseph, this is what he was most noted for. In Hebrews 11, verse 22, this was written about him. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. The words were spoken in faith, 
and the words were fulfilled by God who ensured that his people carried out what was spoken. Along with his bones, it appears from uh, Acts chapter 7 that the bones of all of the other sons of Israel were also brought back with his. But the words here are expressly given to show the fulfillment of that oath. God from eternity past had a plan even before the world came to be. He would step out of eternity, Jesus the man, so that the world, his love, could clearly see. He alone has led man out of the bondage of sin and into the wonder of his glorious light. Yes, it's true, we were all but done in, but he stepped out of eternity to make all things right. Such a God, such a creator, who would do this thing? How my heart yearns to know him more. And for all my days, his praises to sing. Someone, please start the score. Let us sing a song of joy to him now and forevermore. Won't someone please start that wonderful score? Our third thought today, the Lord went before them. It's verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, so they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. At this verse, the parenthetical thought of the previous verses ends and the narrative of the Exodus travel continues. From Sukkot, Israel went to a place called Etham, which is said to be at the edge or literally the end of the wilderness. The name Etham could have one of quite a few possible meanings. It could mean with them, their plowshare, fortress, their sign, their strength, and maybe others. Each scholar that I read has attempted to, to define the name based on the meaning of the letters as they're structured, either from a Hebrew or from an Egyptian context. None that I read seem to connect the meaning to the text itself. However, if we do that, the name seems more than likely. The name Sukkot that we saw a couple sermons ago was given for a reason. Itam, like Sukkot, doesn't have to be the name of the place at the time of their arrival, but the name given to the place upon their arrival. They went from Sukkot, meaning tabernacles, and its meaning was intended to show the state of Israel at that time, and now they're in Itam, and it's mentioned, and it must be for the same reason. If the account drives the meaning, then the next verse explains the meaning. Verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. Albert Barnes, the great scholar from ages past, says that a fire and smoke signals were used by Greeks and Persians in their marches. One ancient papyrus is said to call the commander of the Egyptian army a flame in the darkness at the head of his soldiers. As he says, by this sign then, the pillar of cloud, the Lord showed himself as their leader and their general. Israel is at the edge of the wilderness, camped and ready to move on. But now for the very first time, it mentions this new development. The term Lord, meaning Jehovah, is now reintroduced into the narrative instead of Elohim or God. It is with this marvelous description, the cloud and the pillar of fire that he is described. The introduction of the manifestation of the Lord is being tied to the name Itam. And so Itam means their sign because it is what is being portrayed. He is their sign to move, where to move and when to move. He is their sign of comfort and reassurance. He is their sign that he is with them. If Itam is pointing us to the manifestation of the Lord and it means their sign, then Paul's words in 1 Corinthians takes on a much, much more meaningful sense. Moreover, brethren, 
I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. The people were baptized into the cloud as well as the sea. Thus it is a sign to the people of the process of their redemption. As always, this is a literal account which is prophetically picturing the work of the Lord Jesus on behalf of his people, you and me. This is with all certainty because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it is Christ who led them in the wilderness. Verse 22 is our final verse of the day. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Both Numbers and Deuteronomy show that the pillar of cloud and fire remained with Israel all the way through the years of wilderness wanderings. In Exodus chapter 14, it notes that the pillar is both fire and cloud at the same time. The fire would be evident at night and the cloud would obscure the fire during the day. Psalm 105 shows that the cloud not only directed them, but it also provided a covering for them. Here's what it says. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. And the same manifestation is referred to in Isaiah chapter 4 as being there for the people in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ after the tribulation period. Here are those wonderful words. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For all the glory there will be a covering, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from the storm and rain. Everything about the words today, even all of Exodus chapter 13, show us time and time again the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. The people must be redeemed. The people must be sanctified and consecrated, and the people who are will then be accepted by the Lord, and they will be led by him. And to get a better mental picture before we finish, we can once again consider the stupid donkey and the innocent lamb. The value of a donkey is figured greater than that of a lamb, and yet a donkey had to be redeemed by a lamb. The world looks at the value of Jesus as very little. But without the shedding of the blood of that holy lamb, the greatest man on earth cannot be redeemed. What a great thing God has done for us. How marvelous are his ways. And once redeemed, he is there to lead us every step of the way, just as we're seeing with the pillar of cloud and fire for the Israelites. We may feel that we're at the edge of the wilderness or even completely swallowed up in it, but the Lord is there. The Lord is there. So let us not fear. The Lord is there. If you haven't yet committed to this wondrous, beautiful Savior, I'd ask you for just another minute for you to allow me to tell you how you can be today, even right now. The Bible says that we all have original sin. We've seen that in this passage today. That's why these pictures are in here, is to teach us lessons about our state before a holy God. And we cannot enter the presence of that holy God without being redeemed. It is impossible. Jim talked about all paths leading to God, you know, the nonsense of that before we started today. This shows us right there that's the case. No other religion on earth takes care of the sin 
problem. No other religion on earth says that God will take care of that sin problem. It's all about me working to God. It's all about what I will do to please him. And God rejects that because we are already profane. We're already fallen. We already bear original sin. But Jesus stepped out of the eternal realm and he gave his life up in exchange for our sin. He, the perfect and undefiled holy lamb of God, shed his blood so that we could be purchased back from the devil, the power of the devil, the ownership of the devil. He did that because he loves us enough to do it. And then he shows something that's even more astonishing than that. He gives us the choice. He says, if you will come to me, I will heal you. But if you don't want to come to me, you can live in this profane world and you can be separated from my Father for all eternity. The choice is ours, and I would ask that you make the choice today for Jesus Christ. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Please do that. Ask Jesus to simply forgive you of your sins and you will be reconciled to God. And you will walk on streets of gold for all eternity in his glorious presence, all because of the work of the redeeming Lamb. Okay? Our closing verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 48. It's verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Next week is Exodus 14, 1 through 9. It's entitled, The Lord is Watching. That'll be our 39th Exodus sermon. I'll remind you as I do each week and every person that I send a birthday message to on uh, Facebook every morning I do that. I include these words to them. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. I have a poem for you and then we'll take the Lord's table and we'll be done. The poem is entitled, Their Sign. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers to do, and gives it to you, these directions do not ignore, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn, that comes from an animal which you have, which you have heed my word, the males shall be the Lord's, I now warn. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will re not redeem it with that fee, then you shall break its neck, according to this program. And all the firstborn of man's bloodstream among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him by strength of hand, It is true. My following words do not miss. The Lord out of Egypt us he brought, out of the house of bondage, this great deed he wrought. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, even so. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast from the greatest of them, even to the least. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, it would seem, according to his divine word, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes for by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt the land, while Egypt was filled with mournful cries. Then it came to pass on that day, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines that was near although. For God said, lest perhaps the people their minds do change when they see war and return to Egypt, and for freedom instead bondage they exchange. 
So God led the people around by way of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up that day on orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt, hooray, and yippee. And Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you, as I am now relaying. So they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day, as we note, in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, the means of egress. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and by night, following the glorious sight. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire before the people by night. The Lord is there always to lead the way in the path which is just and right. Such a wonderful story God has given to us to tell us of his wondrous redemption plan. And it is all focused on Jesus and what he has done for each of us, fallen man. Thank you, O God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our precious Savior, your eternal word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the wonderful story that you've given us today. Thank you that we can see the consecration of the firstborn and the setting apart of the firstborn are both tied to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is mentioned between the two. And so that we know that because of this consecration and because of this separation, we are truly unleavened and that we are in your presence for all eternity. Now, Lord, we would ask you that you would help us to live in a manner which is unleavened. We reflect what you have already done for us. Help us not to have sin and wickedness in our lives, but rather to honor you with our lives and to tell others about you and to pursue you all of our days. Help us to do this, Lord. Help us to be honest, honorable, and sincere Christians in our walk. And help us to pursue your superior word, even though it gets difficult at times. It gets so difficult to understand some of these precepts, and we have to keep repeating them in order to understand them. Thank you for them because they show us such depth and such wisdom, and they also show us your love. And all of it is through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which every single picture details. It's all about Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly out of the Bible. We get it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from the hand of Paul. And there he wrote these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that, on the, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said this, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed this as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for allowing us to come to this table, and remembering that we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we're here to remember his death until he comes again. And there is no doubt in my mind, I don't need any liberal theologian at a seminary to tell me that the Bible is unreliable or that our faith is unsure. Absolutely, I have every confidence in your word, and I know each person here does. We cling to it. We trust it. We have all of our hope and our, our faith grounded solely on the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we commit our souls to until his glory is coming again. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for our Lord. Thank you, O oh God. Amen. Amen.